Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, where we continue working through Matthew's biography of Jesus. Matthew chapter 14, for those using the Black Bibles, the section we'll be looking at, and this page is found 820 in the Black Bibles in the seats around you. Page 820, Matthew 14, and we're going to read verses 13 through 21. It's the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 men. I was listening to a series of lectures about how to read your Bible earlier this week as I was cutting my grass, and I found one of the illustrations to be helpful, and it especially applies to the way I think we approach this passage of Scripture. The teacher lecturer was explaining that there's a story about Marco Polo, who would have been going off and venturing out into new worlds and new lands, and as he did so, he expected to find new things, new animals, new creatures, and one of the things he thought he would find was a unicorn. And so, sure enough, as he ventures into one part of the world, he finds a large gray animal, and he thought that it was a unicorn because it had a big pointy thing on its, you know, nose and head, and so he thought he discovered the first unicorn when he ventured off into a new world. As you all might know, a big, it was a lot bigger than he expected. It's big and it's gray, and the point was a lot bigger. It was a rhinoceros, right? And so the point of the illustration is a lot of us, as we read the Bible, we have only in our categories unicorns. We have no idea what we might be finding is actually a rhinoceros and not a unicorn at all. It's not a horse with a horn on top of it. It is in a completely different animal altogether. And so as we read this text of scripture, some of you are going to have categories in your mind for what we're reading. And then my job is to hopefully teach to you what the Bible's context and setting is really all about. And you might find that that's actually not a unicorn. That's a completely different animal altogether. So let's see if that's your experience as we dive into God's Word. I'm going to read in verse 13 and follow all the way to verse 21. Follow along, please. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves And gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. 
The first thing we want to consider in this text is the setting, and I think by looking at the setting of this story, we will start to realize this is a different animal than we first thought. It's not a unicorn, it's a rhinoceros. And what I mean by that is that this is a unique story. It is the only miracle of Jesus that is told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four different biographies, if you were, of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include this story of feeding these 5,000 men in their gospel accounts. Typically, I don't look at what the other gospel writers say about a story, and I just try and say, what is Matthew trying to say, and get in the mind and the message of Matthew itself. But what's interesting is that the four different gospels all agree on the number 5,000. Now, I don't think that necessarily means it's exactly 5,000, but at least roughly 5,000, but they all use the number 5,000. But the thing that started getting me thinking was when I realized that it was 5,000 men. And Matthew makes it explicit, doesn't he? 5,000 men besides, or you could translate this, without the women and children. So the first thing I want us to think about in the setting is these 5,000 men, and know that for you all, as you read it, you say, okay, so there's 5,000 men, and uh, there's, there's two possible readings here. We could say there was 5,000 men, and there were women and children there, and it's just saying this is a first century context. It is very patriarchal. In other words, they do not have women's rights in this day, so therefore women don't count, literally. Like, they're not counting the women because they just aren't important, not only to the story, but just in life. I'm not saying that that's the view of the Bible. I'm saying that's the view of the culture, and the Bible is written in a culture, and so therefore it's just telling you there was 5,000 men, and there might have been women and children in addition. So then, theoretically, there could have been thousands in addition to the 5,000 men. There could have been 10, 20,000 people in this crowd. That's, that's possibility number one. But the actual word for men is not the normal word you'd use for a crowd. It's the normal word you'd use for adult men. Adult males. And the fact that Matthew, I believe, translate this with the phrase without women and children means that there were no women and children there, indicating an exclusively masculine gathering, and all four gospel writers use the word that's typically of adult males. So that's first clue number one, that maybe something's going on that we weren't expecting. Second clue that something might be going on with the setting, is the phrase desolate place. Look at verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place. The phrase desolate place is the same phrase used for the wilderness when Jesus is in the wilderness during his temptations. The wilderness has the connotation of it of being, you know, dry and weary and a place of hopelessness in general. But the Old Testament background to the wilderness is actually a place of hope and new beginnings because it was in the wilderness that Moses led the people of Israel into the promised land as they wandered through the wilderness. And so if you have basic understanding of your Old Testament, you will know that the wilderness was like the honeymoon of the marriage between God and his people. 
In fact, the prophets spoke and looked back to the wilderness time period as hopeful time of new beginnings. And even though many of you might be thinking, but they did a lot of bad things in the wilderness. You know, they didn't trust God. Moses smashed the rock with his rod and he wasn't supposed to. And he ended up getting judged for that. And a whole generation of people died out in the wilderness. So the wilderness seems like a time of rebellion. However, in comparison to the rest of the story of Israel, it's pretty good. Therefore, you'll hear things like this in Hosea chapter 2. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Hosea is a whole metaphor about a woman being an adulteress, but God pursuing her and wanting her back and wanting to allure her, where? Into the wilderness. There is a fondness of the wilderness and it is spoken of as, like I said, a place of hope, a place of new beginnings because this is where the nation of Israel was birthed. So then if you read outside of the Bible, you will find all kinds of literature from Jewish people that were meeting up in the wilderness to wait for God's coming power, waiting for manna to fall down from heaven again. There is literature in the Jewish society where they would be hoping for manna to fall from heaven again. There'd be groups and crowds of men that would meet in the wilderness and think this is where God's going to deliver us from these nasty Roman oppressors. The wilderness is a significant setting. When we add that with these 5,000 adult men without women and children, it starts to bring, I think, a compelling case of a different animal altogether. And then we read in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, the same story of Jesus about feeding the 5,000. It's almost identical to what I read for you in Matthew. But he adds a couple different details. Detail number one. Jesus says he looked out at this crowd of 5,000 men and he says they were sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them because they were sheep without a shepherd. Where does that phrase come from in the Old Testament? Sheep without a shepherd. It is a metaphor that suits best a military context. Numbers chapter 27, verse 17 is the first time you'll see the phrase sheep without a shepherd. It reads this way, who shall go out before them and come in before them? Who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of the Lord may not be as a sheep that has no shepherd? Numbers chapter 27 is talking about who's going to lead the people of Israel if Moses isn't going to be there anymore. And the answer is Joshua is going to be their military leader to lead them across the Jordan River, into the promised land and conquer over the Canaanites. That's the first reference. The second reference is in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 17, and is about Ahab and his army after his death in battle. So the leader dies, and they describe when the military leader dies that Israel is now a sheep without a shepherd, and so on and so forth. The best understanding of sheep without a shepherd metaphor is a political military commander-in-chief. 5,000 men without women and children in the wilderness longing and waiting for God to do something big, to lead a new people, a new revival, a new revolution. 
And Jesus looks out on them and he says, they're sheep without a shepherd. They're soldiers without a captain. The second detail in Mark chapter 6 is that in Mark 6, when they're feeding the 5,000, he organizes them in military language, 50 and 100. Groups of 50 and 100. Now that could be just a general organization and tidiness and cleanliness for trying to feed this big, large group of men. Or it could be another subtle hint that when you put all of them together, something different is going on. So in Mark 6, 39, it says, Jesus directed them all to sit down in groups on green grass. And so they sat down in groups in hundreds and in fifties. Or maybe you could say in military format. And if you're not convinced that potentially something different, something more is going on in the setting, as we read these different examples, let me give you two more details. One from John's gospel. In John chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us that Jesus did the miracle, he fed the 5,000, and then this is how the crowd responded. Listen to this text. In John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. After the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely, this is the prophet who was to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. 5,000 men without women and children. In the wilderness where men in the Jewish community have a reputation for getting together to create some sort of revolution to have a new start, a new beginning, where God's going to meet us in a special way. Jesus looks at them as sheep, without a shepherd, without a military leader, has compassion on them, feeds them, heals them, does miraculous signs. They respond in John 6, and it says, we're going to make him our king. And Jesus knows that they're going to do that at any cost, even if it's by force. They're going to demand him, you're our prophet. You're going to be our leader. Let's go get the Romans. So Jesus gets away from the crowds. He withdraws in John 6, but he withdraws in our text. Look down in your Bibles again in Matthew chapter 14, and look at the way the story has bookends. Verse 13, now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there. When Jesus heard this, when Jesus heard what? Well, that's the previous story. John chapter, I mean, Matthew chapter 14. What was the previous story? Just look up at the little heading in your Bible and you'll see the death of John the Baptist. Jesus' cousin, the guy that baptized him, his friend, his person that he said of all women, This man is the great, all men born of women, this man is the greatest prophet, greatest person that's ever lived on this side of the story of the world. So John the Baptist, big deal. Jesus finds out that he just got his head cut off from Herod, Antipas. And so Jesus heard this and he withdraws. Why? One possible reason is to mourn. He's deeply upset. However, every time this word withdrawal is used in Matthew's gospel, it's in context of Jesus leaving hostility, leaving people who are not 
in favor of him and his message. It begins in Matthew chapter 2 when there is uh, Herod trying to kill him when he's a baby. Remember that story? And then it uses the phrase, and so they withdrew to Egypt. Or earlier in the Gospels, we have Jesus withdrawing in Matthew when there are crowds of people and there is angry mobs and there are people that are trying to get him and kill him or Pharisees trying to take him out and he withdraws. He, he, he moves away. In other words, it seems like he is withdrawing because he wants to get outside of Herod's territory. So he moves to a desolate place. In my mind, if you want to think of the Sea of Galilee in your Middle uh, Eastern Mediterranean map, and the Sea of Galilee that follows, uh, that trickles down the Jordan River, and then there's Jerusalem underneath of that, uh, if you think of Israel. The Sea of Galilee, he's on what I would think the northwest or western side, and he is moving to the eastern side because that's outside of Herod's territory. That would be Philip the Tetrarch, who is governing over that area, and Jesus wants to just get away from Herod, who's trying to put an end to Jesus and John the Baptist. So after the feeding of the 5,000, Look at Matthew 14, verse 22. Immediately, he made, and made is too weak of a translation, he compelled the disciples to get in the boat and go before him to the other side, and he dismissed the crowds. So here's what I'm trying to point to you to see. By themselves, I think each of these details may not be much. But when you put all of them together and you read all four gospel accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, it seems like this is a turning point in Jesus' ministry up in Galilee before he heads to Jerusalem when he decisively rejects the popular demand that he become their political and military leader. The 5,000 men is most likely a group of men who are ready to lead a rebellion against the Roman government and empire. Jesus is going to do something very different. He is not going to use force or swords or battles. He is going to use soldiers and a different strategy. So let's look at those two points in our text. If you have before yourself 5,000 revolutionary rebels that are ready to be zealots to take out the Roman government... What's, what's your game plan? What's your strategy? And so first, I want us to consider the soldiers of Jesus' revolution. And, and one way to think about this is actually the Civil War a little bit. We were just in va- uh, vacationing uh, in the South uh, a week ago. And as we were doing so, we did a tour in Charleston, and we learned about the Revolutionary War, and we learned about the Civil War, and different things that were going on in South Carolina at that time. And if any of you know some of your Civil War history, it was kind of like a a trickle effect or a domino effect of South Carolina was the first place where they said, no, 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 we are not on board with Abraham Lincoln as the president, and we're going to secede from the rest of the United States, and we're going to be our own Confederate nation. And so then they adopted a new constitution, and they got these other states to get on board with them. And it was the southern belt of those states, you know, Florida and Alabama and those places today, Mississippi, Texas. And then eventually, you would get to, uh, later on in the story, Virginia and some of the states, North Carolina and the ones above it. The reason I share that is because there was, at times, mixed feelings about this revolution, this rebellion. 
there would have been southern states like South Carolina that were making lots of money on their plantations and slavery and on the backs of slaves, and they did not want anything to uh, get rid of that economic development, and so therefore they were against the Union and Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, and they said, no, we're going to secede and we're going to be our own nation, right? So you got that group of people. But then you have those that are in the south that are along the mountain ranges of the Appalachian. And that would have been in Tennessee and in what we would now call West Virginia. The reason why Virginia is broken between Virginia and West Virginia is because there was the rebellion against the United States and then there was the rebellion against the rebellion. Because the people that lived in the mountain ranges did not have farms, so they did not have slaves. And because they didn't have farms, they didn't have slaves. They did not care about this whole slavery issue in the same way that the people that had plantations down in South Carolina or other places like it. So you had the rebellion, the initial rebellion by the South to say, no, we're done with Abraham Lincoln and the United States. We're making our own nation, the Confederates. But then you had those that were in the South, like where West Virginia is, along the Appalachian Mountains. They're like, well, we're rebelling against your rebellion. We're a rebellion against the rebellion. I say all that because I think when you read a story like this, it is a great illustration that what Jesus is doing is he is rebelling against the rebellion. He has 5,000 men that are ready to overtake and try and overthrow the Roman government. But he is rebelling against the rebellion because everything he does is, is not what you'd expect a military leader that's going to take charge and go. He withdraws from the crowds. He dismisses the crowds. And in fact, let's look what he does with his soldiers, or as it's called here in the text, his disciples. Pick up in verse 15, and it says, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing. And he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. I want you to notice the way that Jesus includes his disciples. He doesn't just feed the disciples by himself. His first response is to say, you feed them. Now, there's two very good reasons for that. One is that I believe the story is being told to help you see that Jesus is better than Elisha. Do you remember the story we just had read to us? Paul came up here and read from us from 2 Kings chapter 4. And there's this prophet named Elisha, and he's powerful, and he does all these miracles. And so there was this story of a hundred different men that were hungry, and there was famine in the land, and all they had was 20 barley loaves. And 20 loaves isn't going to feed a hundred men. And before that story, there was the issue with the stew that was all poisoned, and then he put some flour in it, and so he did a food miracle with the stew, but then the one that's closest to our text, the, the words and the language is overwhelmingly connected. Elisha tells them, you give them something to eat. And they're like, well, we, we don't have enough to feed them. We only got 20 barley loaves. And then they ended up miraculously feeding them with just those 20 barley loaves. And then there was some left over and they were all satisfied. 
Do you see the connections between our story here in Matthew and the story there? I think Jesus wants them to know he is the greater prophet. It's why in John chapter 6, I read to you, surely he is the prophet. He's the one that we've been coming out into the wilderness to find the new leader who's going to lead the nation of Israel. Or look at the last little details of our text. In verse 20, it says that there was 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. Now, why 12? Because Jesus is leading a rebellion against the rebellion. There is going to be a new people of Israel, a new nation, and he is the new prophet, the new Moses, that is going to bring manna from heaven and feed the people in the wilderness. He is all of that and much more. Therefore, they then are his new soldiers as he is the king. They are his disciples in the new constituted nation of Israel. Twelve corresponds to the twelve tribes of Israel. So Jesus asks them, you feed them. And they say, we have five loaves and two fish. That's not going to feed anybody. I mean, that's not, that's less than 20 barley loaves. And there's more men and there's less food, but Jesus provides even a greater miracle because he's an even greater Elisha. But I want you to think about how this applies then to us if we want to consider ourselves bowing before King Jesus, citizens of a new kingdom, part of the new nation of Israel, the continuity of the people of God from Old and New Testament. Here we are, God's people here on the earth. What's the implications for you and for me? Well, I think it's quite plain, isn't it? Jesus doesn't just do the miracle himself. He says, you feed them, and then they feel completely inadequate. Do you realize that in order to be in the kingdom of God, to be a part of this new constituted Israel, the first step is to feel your inadequacy? To know in and of yourself, I have nothing to offer. I cannot do this on my own. Jesus is teaching and illustrating and showing to all of us that there is something more going on for us. He orders them to sit down, breaks the loaves, And then the disciples give out all of the food to the crowds. Friends, I want you to think about your own life in this way, and I want you to consider whether or not this truth has really hit home in your heart. Do you look at what you have and think, yeah, I got it all together? Or are you really aware of your inadequacy, of your sins, your shortcomings, your failures? Do you realize that that's exactly the kind of people that Jesus wants for his kind of rebellion? Now, typically when you think of leading a rebellion against the Roman government, you're going to think, I want strong. I want able-bodied. I want young and fit. I want the best and the brightest. Jesus wants inadequate, weak, sick. And people that aren't just that case, but know themselves to be that case. So friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then that's precisely because you have not admitted and confessed your inadequacy, your sin, your shortcoming, your rebellion against God. We need to rebel against that rebellion. We need to consider that there is no way that we're going to get right with God unless God does something with our pitiful offerings, our five loaves and two fish. I love that great hymn that says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Or as Tim Keller has 
so eloquently said, and I've repeated a hundred times, hopefully. If not, here's it again. All you need to be in the nation of Jesus' new constituted citizen of his kingdom, all you need is nothing. That's all you need. All you need is nothing. The problem is, too many of us, we come to God with our hands full. We come thinking that we have enough to provide. And so we need to realize the great important lesson that in order to be a soldier in the rebellion against the rebellion, in order to be a citizen in Christ's kingdom, if he is our king, we must admit our inadequacy. Be reminded of it day in and day out. Acknowledge our sin. Be comfortable talking about it. Create discipleship relationships in the context of this church where we're not afraid to share what's really going on. Because, my friends, that is the very kind of people that God wants to work with, and it's only until then will he work with you. The miracle happens after the people realize, we can't do this. I mean, our solution was to send them out. Go to the towns and villages. Jesus' solution was, come to me. And that is always the rhythm and the discipline of God's grace in our lives. To realize our inadequacy, come to Jesus, and find our all in him. If that's what the soldiers look like, what is the strategy of Jesus' rebellion against the rebellion? That's our third and final point. And this point was the point that touched me the most. If you look down at the words of Jesus in verse 16, he said, bring them here to me. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and asking for the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. The phrase here is what we alluded to earlier in the service. For those of you that were following along, paying attention. What was our first scripture reading in our order of service? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following. And if you read that text closely, you're going to notice some key words that should start popping out. And if you read this text in conjunction with what Matthew's going to later write in Matthew's gospel about the institution of the Passover feast, the Lord's Supper, when Jesus is in that upper room with his disciples, he's going to take the bread. He's going to say a blessing. He's going to give thanks for it. He's then going to break the bread and he's going to give it. And all of these key verbs, there's four of them in this text that correspond with the later story of Jesus in the upper room. Therefore, it seems, this is widely kind of acknowledged by most Bible teachers and scholars, that right here, this story of feeding the 5,000 is foreshadowing the way Jesus will institute, will establish, will start his rebellion against the rebellion. The reason I say it that way is because when we were on our tour in South Carolina, we were over by Fort Sumter, and if, again, you know your Civil War history, the very first shot that started the Civil War was when the rebels of the Confederates saw Fort Sumter, which was this little island in the coast area of South Carolina, and there was a naval, um, what is it, station, post of United States soldiers from the north that were running and manning Fort Sumter. And so the southern confederates who were rebelling against the United States decided that to enact and start the Civil War, they would fire upon and take out Fort Sumter, and sure enough, they did. 
And as many historians may point to various things, this is traditionally one of the things that people point to as what started the Civil War. But that's not unique in human history. Rebellions and revolutions often start when somebody takes the first shot. The Revolutionary War is the shot that was heard around the world. If you remember that story up in the Boston Harbor area or whatever it is, I can't remember because I'm not that good with history. But the point is, there's the first shot that starts the Revolutionary War. There's the first shot that starts the American Civil War. There's always some sort of first shot, and nobody wants to be the one that takes the first shot, but eventually somebody does, and a revolution starts. What were these 5,000 men looking for out in the wilderness? Potentially, theoretically, they were looking for a new military political leader who would lead them by force, John chapter 6 says, to take out the Romans and establish the kingdom of God here on earth. But the strategy of God in flesh, Jesus, fully God and fully man, is so upside down. It is a rebellion against that rebellion. He breaks bread, he gives thanks. He heals people and feeds 5,000 hungry men who are ready to bloodthirsty zealots. He doesn't use force. He doesn't use swords. He uses bread. Bread is throughout the scriptures a sign of life. I know when you and I hear bread, we think of gluten or carbohydrates. We don't have in our mind the right animal. We're thinking unicorns and it's actually a rhinoceros in this story. When you hear bread and Jesus breaking bread, it is a source of life. It's the basic staples of everyday living in the first century world. So Jesus breaks bread because he's going to not take life. He's going to give life. Even to the very people who are not for his agenda, he's going to feed these 5,000 men. He's going to ultimately dismiss them. But he's going to feed them and he's going to heal their sick because the text says he has compassion on them. Do you know many even American presidents or people that have won campaigns or become the commander-in-chief because of their great compassion on other people? My guess is the answer is not too many. That they're deeply known at their heart of hearts as looking out at broken and hurting people and having compassion. That's the strategy of this king and his kingdom is that his people would emulate him and have compassion and want to feed the hungry, heal the sick, and break bread together. That doesn't seem like a great strategy, does it? You're going to overtake the Roman government by breaking bread, healing the sick, and having people have compassion on one another? Yup. And sure enough, study your history, and you'll find out that's exactly what happened? It was through the compassion of followers of Jesus, faithful soldiers who were willing to lay down their life for the lives of others, that Christianity exploded through the Roman, government, Roman Empire all over Western and Eastern Europe. Christianity was very small around the times of Jesus and after Jesus, but when it exploded and became this giant movement, I think Rodney Stark is the historian that points this out. It was when there was this horrific plague and there was all these people dying from the plague and it was the Christians who had compassion to stay back and help the sick even though it meant they would get contagiously 
bringing on the disease of themselves. But through that, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people saw their sacrifice and compassion and came to faith in Jesus, and the Roman government was overturned. From being a godless, pagan, many different gods, many different religions, to a Christian empire in a few hundred years. The rebellion against the rebellion is about compassion, about breaking bread, and about people that want to help one another. That's his strategy. It's not glamorous. It's not going to win too many elections. My guess is if we listen to the Democratic campaigns, that's not going to be too many people's platforms. And that's not, nothing to do with like, the Democratic Party. It's just that's the ways of this world. That's the political world we want to live in. How are we going to have a strong military? How are we going to have a successful economy? How are we going to do this and that? It's how can we be powerful and mighty in the world's eyes? Jesus wants weak and adequate soldiers for his rebellion because his strategy is to help the weak, feed the poor, feed the hungry. It's a rebellion against the rebellion. Do you want to sign up for it? Are you a part of it? Does your life at all match this? Or do you look like you're just kind of going along with the flow of everybody else's rebellion against God? We want to do a rebellion against that rebellion, and the strategy is here in the story of Jesus. The final word I want to bring to your attention is that foreshadowing moment. When it says that he took the loaves, he looked up to heaven, he said a blessing, he broke the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and then he gave them to the crowds. As I mentioned, this foreshadows the Lord's Supper when Jesus' own body would be broken, would be given to us through the bread and the cup. His blood would be shed for us. So let's think about it this way. What's the first shot that started the Civil War, the Revolutionary War? It was an act of force and of violence. And like I said, Jesus' strategy is one of life-giving compassion and love toward humanity but it was an act of violence that started the rebellion against the rebellion. The revolution of Jesus' citizens and of his kingdom would start with a completely violent act. It was the act of Jesus dying on a cross. As he was hung on the cross and he said in the upper room that his body would be broken, it would be given for them, his blood would shed, and these common elements would now institute the people of God sitting around tables together, eating meals and saying, this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. What really got it all started, the first shot that started the revolution was the shot to the head of Jesus. The shot to kill the leader of the movement. It was his death on a cross and he blessed his persecutors. As he was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, I'm going to say a blessing. Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then he breathed his last, and his body broke. Blessed, broke, and then he gave. He gave himself for us. My friends, this is how this rebellion against the rebellion, how this revolution against all of the rebellion against God is going to happen in this world right now in the northern 
northwest suburbs of Chicago is when we embrace Christ as our king, his body given for us, and we realize that is the example. It is not for us to take lives, but to give ours. And so Christ gave his life for us. It was broken and shared and distributed. And now it's being shared to you. In just a moment, we're going to take the bread and the cup. We're going to receive these common elements. And it will seem like, really, what's going on here? And if all you have in your mind is a unicorn, you're going to miss a completely different animal altogether. There's a rhinoceros. It's big and it's mighty and it's going to lead a rebellion against the rebellion. It is going to start a revival. It already has. It's been continuing. And if you'd like to sign up, if you'd like to be a part of this, then it's time for you to respond. By taking Christ's body for us, his blood shed for us, and being satisfied where there will be 12 baskets left over. That's what happens when we come to Jesus. He fills all the longings of our heart. He satisfies the desires of our soul. And he gives us all that we need and that much more when we come to him. So would you come to him? Come to him now and take the bread and the cup with us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to urge you to consider taking Christ today for the first time and rebel against all thoughts of your self-righteousness, of your works and approval before God, your, your great resume of look at all that I've done and say it is completely inadequate. It is five loaves and two fish before God. And let me receive the bread in the cup and say this is enough for me. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for Jesus Christ giving himself for us as our sacrifice. We thank you for his life being a life filled with compassion and love to the weak and the hurting. We thank you for his inclusion of all kinds of people from every stratosphere, every tongue and tribe and language, every kind of problem and sin and suffering. There is no one that is too far off. We thank you, God, that we are all included if we would just come with nothing, would come with our inadequacy, come with the very sin that we needed saved from, and bring it to you and cling to the cross and find our all in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this great miracle of feeding, that you're the God who provides everything that we need and so much more out of the abundance of your riches, your glorious riches in Christ Jesus. We have a feast before us. And so I pray, God, that we would know what we have in Christ and we would live content people and that you would help us to acknowledge it and live in this world going against the strain of give me more and I need more and I'm never satisfied with enough to have all we need in Christ. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.